Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Tiffany in Rome, Katie in Seattle. Tiffany sick in Rome. Katie yeah. currently well in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> I hate how you put currently in there as if like you're not sure that's going to be the case in a week. Well, I hope it is the case in a week, but it's it's just going around so much. And there's so many holiday parties happening around gatherings. So, you know, that only hurts your chances of staying totally well. But it did bring up one of these parties did bring up the topic I want to talk to you about today, actually. So I was at a retirement party. It wasn't essentially a, a holiday party, although any party around the holidays has that festive feeling to it. But it was a retirement party for the director of a place where I used to work. We were all gathered together, and it was not for um, public radio, which is what everybody thinks of me as. But I also used to be the program director of this performance venue in town, and the man I worked for at the time is retiring. So I went to his goodbye party, and. It was great, kind of a nice reunion of sorts of people I used to work with, which was fun. But there were also a lot of people there who know me in a lot of different capacities, many from being a person that's on the radio, most probably from being a person who's on the radio that they've listened to for well over a decade and have also met me in person many times because of town hall, because of other things, right? So anyway... The in- two interesting things happen at this party, conversationally, I thought. Because, of course, all these people are saying, oh, it's so good to see you. What are you up to these days? I hear you all the time on the radio. And I'll say, not all the time. I'm not working there, you know, that much right now or whatever. Anyway, long story short, two things that I found interesting. One, so many people talked to me about how much they liked my voice which I don't know if you remember, Tiffany, how in my early days in radio, how many people who were in charge did not like my voice, that now hearing like a room full of people saying things like, oh, I just love listening to you. You're, you're so matter of fact, or you're so soothing. I, it, you know, the little Katie inside still thinks, wow, that's different. That's so <laughs> different from what, from where I started, that all these longtime listeners think of me as so legitimate. So I'll take it. That's really nice. (laughs) (laughs) But also still startling to me for some reason. Uh, And then there was a a very nice man who I've seen at many events over the years and knows me well as a radio personality. And he was asking me about what I've been up to because, like I said, I'm not filling in at the radio station as much right now because I only am there when people are sick or on vacation. So I'm not there every single week like I used to be. And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm still doing a lot of radio stuff. I'm making this podcast, The Bittersweet Life, but I'm also writing a lot and I'm working on writing a novel. And he gives me this very kind of mixed look, one that's trying to look encouraging, but is also looking underneath it all skeptical, slightly sorry for me, thinking, boy, is she going down the wrong road here? And then he says, oh, well, good luck with that. And, you know, you're just, you're so good on the radio. You're just, your voice is just really wonderful. Me and my wife always love hearing you. Which, you know, was a nice compliment, again, but also 
in that moment because of his facial expression said, you know, you're really good over here. And this road that you're heading down with the writing thing, eh, you know, I mean, that can't work out, right? And I, th and I think it's one of those things where we do tend to think that people do one thing, right? You're mm. a radio personality. But you don't necessarily take into account that to be on the radio takes a good deal of writing and writing chops yeah. <laughs> and storytelling ability. And that these two things, while different, do have things in common. You know, they're not completely alien from one another. But it is also that thing of saying, but I really like you as this. I don't yeah. want to see you as, you know, this other thing. And then well, you also have that me... struggle of like seeing yourself as that other thing because you're not that other thing yet. You're striving to be that other thing. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And it's really, it's really frustrating. I'm sure a, a very nice person, but I find that a lot of people just don't have a lot of imagination. I think that's what it is. I think it's a lack of imagination that you can sit there and be like, oh, I can see this person as this other thing. I can accept that they are going to reinvent themselves or maybe not even reinvent themselves because it's not like you're going to stop being a radio person. You're adding on to your repertoire and there's no reason why you should not be capable of excelling in both fields. And I find that the people who have a hard time seeing that are people who are a little narrow-minded. Sorry, no offense to this guy. I hope he's not listening. But you know, it is a little bit narrow-minded to think that that one person can only do one thing. Mm -hmm. And that's when you were telling me this story five minutes ago. You know, you told me a shorter version of it, but that was the first thing that popped into my head was there are so many people out there. And I mean, people who are successful or people who are, who excel, you know, who do do more than one thing. You, you don't have to do just one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I know it's hard because it, it it's not for instance, this man hears me do a lot of radio stuff all the time, isn't privy to what the rest of my life looks like, you know, so would have no idea that in the years, the last years that have gone by that I've spent a lot of time practicing writing and trying to get better. So it could feel to, to him that it's just like, oh, yeah, this radio personality is like, I should write a book, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like well, so I mean, many celebrity fair, a lot types of, do. Yeah. To be fair, a lot of people, celebrities and non-celebrities kind of think, you know, oh, hey, I'm going to write a book like it's easy because it can sort of from the outside maybe seem easy. And that's not the case in your in your case. And not only if he knows you, I feel like he should know that you aren't the type of person who would flippantly just decide that now you're going to write a book and it's going to be a bestseller. <laughs> um, when I started writing, when I started writing seriously, working on the book that became Midnight in the Piazza as you know, and as many of our listeners know, I sort of started out in the classical music world that was very serious about that. I was very devoted and dedicated to that career path and uh, didn't eventually pursue it all the way to a professional career, but I did go very far in my studies and I took it very seriously. And I think at the time when I was very young, I, I kind of felt like that's the only thing for me. In fact, I closed myself off to so many other things, just because I thought, you know, I have to have blinders on, I have to be focused on only this, this is the only thing I'll ever be able to do. I have to give it my all. And I always love to write, I love to write from the time I was a, a very young girl. But I, as I got older, I didn't give myself permission to have any other 
type of creative output. Like it had to be only music and particularly singing. And years pass, of course, and I, I gave up singing. I gave up the, the goal of having a professional career in it. And I eventually started writing. I, it happened. I won't go into the whole story of how it happened, but I'm telling you this, Katie, because I have never told you this, that when I told our mutual friend, Suzanne, who we talk about so often on this podcast, who is a writer. And also and an infrequent listener. So I'm very, no very barred. Like she, <laughs> she, she never, she almost never listens. Um, but when I told her, she was already, I, I don't know if she was published yet or if she was on her the road to being published, but she had been extremely serious about being a writer since, since I met her at 14. Like that, that had been for her, the thing that she always knew she would do. And so when I sort of opened up and broached to her and, and sort of confessed in a sense that I was writing a book, I was shy about it. And I was kind of embarrassed. And I kind of felt like, is she going to take me seriously? Is she going to um, feel like I am like just the way you felt like this man thought about you? Oh, I'm just going to write a book now because it's easy. And she was the opposite. She took me so seriously right from the very first moment. And I cannot tell you how important that was to me, even though she was a peer, it wasn't like she was, you know, a teacher or somebody like that. But nevertheless, a friend of mine who was in the midst of that career, even if at the beginning, she never said to me, well, I mean, I thought you were a singer. Like, what's this? Uh, what happened what's to this your singing career? Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you were so good at that. Like, why don't you just focus on that? She just said, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. I remember when I first told her, she said, that makes so much sense because we used to write letters as kids, just like you and I did. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I can totally see that. I can totally picture it. You have a particular voice. I don't know why I just told you that story, That's only lovely. that it kind of, yeah, I mean, it's 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 really what you would hope that people would, the reaction you'd hope people would have when you tell them you were about to embark in a new creative or any field. It doesn't even have to be a creative field. Yeah. And I, I've been lucky to have people in my corner as well that have been very encouraging through this new start of something different. It's interesting while you were saying that, though, I was reminded of uh, Molly Ringwald, the actress from, uh, mm -hmm. what, Pretty in Pink, The Breakfast, the Breakfast Club, Club, and tons of other <laughs> movies that were very popular in the 80s. And she wrote a book, a very, very good book called, I think, When It Happens to You. I'm fairly positive that that's the title, but I could be wrong. I still have it somewhere on my my shelves. It's that good. It's a very good book. And I had to interview her for NPR. And I somehow decided before she came in that I was not going to ask her a single thing about her acting career. I was only going to talk about her as a writer and this amazing, great book that she had pulled off. Was it a novel? Or yeah, it's a, a, it's a novel. Yeah, it's a novel. And I just remember after the interview was over, we talked for about 25 or 30 minutes after the interview was over, she just said, thank you so much for not asking me about Hollywood and about the movie industry. She said, nobody else on my book tour has not asked me about that instead. It's wow. the same thing of like, I'm, tr I'm doing something different here. And I want you to think about the thing that I'm doing here right now, you know? Yeah, it must be even harder for someone in the public eye. I mean, you also have been in the public eye or at least the public ear um <laughs> on a much as smaller a, scale as a radio <laughs> much <laughs> on smaller. a much smaller scale but <laughs> yeah but for someone who is world famous to break out of that pigeonhole must be even harder because everyone's going to want to talk about what you used to do and who you used to be 
Well, and even the but, way you know, I just maybe, qualified that by saying, and her book is really good. It's very yeah, good. As if it was, if it's a surprise, yeah. as if you couldn't possibly be, she couldn't possibly be good at both things. I was actually just thinking about this today. It's funny that you brought this up because I was on Instagram. I feel like this is like the third episode in a row where I've mentioned something I picked up off of Instagram. I got to get off Instagram. Clearly like lives on Instagram clearly. Well, you have been ill. I I have been, but I've been, I've been reading and knitting mostly. Okay. See, that's my hidden talent, Katie knitting. Nobody knows I can knit. That's true. I'm really good. (laughs) Um, No, I was, I was looking at, I follow a lot of writers, a lot of, you know, a lot of unpublished writers, a lot of self-published writers, a lot of aspiring writers and published writers. And one of them, and I don't know where she is on her writing path, because of course I don't follow these people that closely, but she also makes cakes like professionally for weddings. Mm -hmm. And this video popped up and a reel she had made of her process making a like three or four tiered, unbelievable wedding cake, crazy, unbelievable. And as she was doing this, I just thought to myself, how could you possibly be so good at two different things? Now, I haven't read her writing, so I don't know if, you know, how good of a writer she is. But let's say she's a good writer. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt. Let's say she's a great writer. And she also does this other thing that's so amazing. And to me, like anybody who can make beautiful desserts, to me, that is like a superpower. I can't, (laughs) I attempt it and I fail miserably every time. So I'm just like, wow, like, I think probably that's more common than we than we think about that well, that people have you know these different talents that sometimes are totally unrelated. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. I was like, I bet I wonder if I wish we could just have a snapshot, just somehow know what percentage of people are proficient in multiple things and what people are centered on one particular thing. I do think that mm-hmm. that at least in United States culture, perhaps that admiring somebody who's very good at one thing that has a specialty. I don't know. Maybe it's just my career. I've met so many people who specialize in something and are so good, whether it be a scientist who knows the ins and outs of every facet of nuclear physics, or, you know, it's a writer who's just dedicated themselves to writing since the time they were born. And they're just an amazingly accomplished writer. And I have always tended to admire those people that found a thing and like hooked into the thing because I was never that person. I was always like this thing and then maybe this thing. And what about that thing? You know, I was always more of a dabbler and that's not just professionally. That's in life. I mean, that's part of the reason why, you know, I'm not going to argue my strong opinions of something because I'm so willing to like take in different information from other people and have my opinion be shifted so I'm just a dabbler. I think you're selling yourself short. I don't think you're a dabbler. I think you are very open-minded. And I think that you, I mean, you probably have such a richer life than the concert pianist who plays to hugely sold out concert halls and is, you know, maybe one of the greatest pianists of her generation, but doesn't know what to do with herself when she's not on stage and doesn't have any interest. I mean, you have a rich life. <laughs> You know, you Mm -hmm. might not get all the accolades and all of the praise of the concert pianist, but you, Mm -hmm. you know, you do all sorts of fun things. You're constantly exploring new things. And I'm sure that it's firing off your brain in all sorts of amazing ways that then plugs back into the art that you are creating. So I don't, I don't like to see it established. Now there are dilettantes out there who every year decide to go after a new career, but that's, that's clearly not 
that's clearly not where you are. Um, <laughs> no. And I think I think you can have more than one career, even simultaneously, like I kind of feel like I do, mm-hmm. um, without being a dilettante. You know, that's I feel like a dilettante or a dabbler or whatever, someone who literally every year they've got a new a new favorite hobby and a new career. And it never lasts. You know, nothing ever lasts and they never stick with anything. Mm. So I don't I don't really see that as you, but you've just you have a wide range of interests. And I think that I think I think that's a more a richer way to live. Although I too admire people, you know, I admire the concert pianist. I, I admire the the writer who goes into her own world and creates these amazing, brilliant works of art. I mean, of course I admire that. You can't help but admire that, mm-hmm. but you want to live or you want to just, I don't know. I mean, that's a deeper, deeper level conversation right there. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's also really important to along the way, I was thinking this, even when I presented this as a possible topic idea to you that you also have to just everybody regardless of what it is that you do you should strive to listen to the people who are positive rather than the ones who are negative I feel like so many people tend to have the negatives echo in their head like I can remember an author friend of mine who shall remain nameless he and this is a long time ago like well over a decade ago I remember him saying to me once, he's like kind of an old school, very established writer who thinks of me as a quintessential journalist, which is interesting since I've worked in news radio, but I've never considered myself a quintessential journalist. But anyway, he told me once that there was no way that I could be a writer because I wasn't creative enough. And and it's funny because it must have happened before I moved to Rome because I remember writing about it when I was living in Rome. I was doing the artist way where you're trying to like rebuild your artistic spirit. And I was supposed to, one of the exercises is you're supposed to write about people who have somehow been an artistic block, whether they meant to be or not, what they said or did kept you from expressing yourself in a way that you thought you should be. And so I was writing about him among other people, but I've also just in some ways in my head thought, well, you'll see. You know, boy, are you wrong. Clearly, you don't, one, understand how creative you need to be to make radio every single day. And secondly, like, who are you to say what I can and cannot imagine? And clearly, you know, it doesn't even make any sense. Like, I knew that he liked hanging out with me because he thought my imagination was so fun and interesting. So I don't even know. I'm not sure, like, why a person says a thing like that. Or again, if he was like, Mm -hmm. you know, you should be a radio person. I'm a writer you're a radio person and let us not get well our I do think tracks crossed I do think there is a certain amount of people not you know you know feeling like how do I put this like not wanting to be one-upped you know in their own career you know what it is it's it's nothing more complicated than um, insecurity I think the way so, you know you said why would somebody say something like that it, it can only be somebody who's insecure because if you're insecure about your own path and your own work you can't, you know, encourage other people. Hmm. You don't have it within you. So how can you offer, you know, it's like what I, you know, you, that famous, uh, famous expression, you can't love someone until you love yourself. Right. Uh-huh. It's the same thing. You can't encourage others until you are, you know, you can't give other people assurance until you are self-assured. Hmm. I don't, don't know. you think, I mean, it's I gotta don't... be that. Why else would no, I somebody act... say something? Hmm. Like I don't that? know. I don't actually think that it is that, but they'll have to like puzzle that a bit because, you know, I know he's very self-assured. And it's not some sort of cover up. So uh, you don't know. 
You don't know people are good at putting on masks. Well, really good. I know, but I don't know if that's like the only reason it would be. I mean, it could also be that you're truly, I don't know, trying to act like the grandfatherly figure and be like, you don't see the path ahead as well as I see. You know, it could equally yeah, be but that. Yeah, but that's not what he said. That's not what he said. And No, but I mean, that's where the even advice if, could, like where the uh, statement could come from. It's no, possible. you're 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 being too generous. The guy said you are not creative enough to to be a writer. That's fighting words, you know. Even if I thought that about somebody, which I would never deign to think that I would know what's going on inside someone else's brain. Mm-hmm. But if I even thought that about someone, I would never in a million years say it. Why would you do that? It was it would be like telling somebody that they're ugly. Why? There's nothing. What's what's gonna What are you gonna accomplish by that? Nothing. Well, it's just mean. And what's interesting is I I have no recollection of like, where were we when he said it? And actually, when I was rereading the journals from Rome after the fact, looking for probably some topic for this show, I came across (laughs) myself writing about this and him. And I thought, I do not remember him saying this at all. So clearly, well, that's why journaling is so valuable. Yeah, but that's I why mean, journaling is so clearly. I so widely went like got past it in our yeah, well, relationship. I mean, so that's a whole other story. But yeah, but that's but that's again that's a testament to your what's going on in you is that you were able to go get past that. Yeah, he still was the jerk who said that <laughs> really jerky thing, <laughs> whether or not you got past it. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Kitty here. It is the season of giving. And as you think about what gifts you want to give at the end of this year, we hope that you will consider a gift to the bittersweet life. We are not an official nonprofit, so we can't help you with your taxes. But your sustaining donation can assure that this show continues in 2023. We will also be accepting new advertisers with the new year. And if you own a business any kind of business, a tourism company, a baking company, a postage company, a company company, whatever it is, if you want to reach a worldwide audience of educated and curious travelers or a group of people who are thinking about moving abroad, we are open to giving a discount to our beloved listeners. So if you own a business and you want to spread the word, let us know. Send us an email at bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com and we'll get the conversation started. Happy holidays. So you <laughs> said, though, before we run out of time, you said that it's not just a modern day issue of people having more than one career or more than one talent and people feeling like, what the heck is this about? That historically, well, I mean, I don't know how I don't know how other people outside of it felt about it, but I'm, I mean, you've heard of the old Renaissance man, yeah, right, um, right, the Renaissance. You man. mean that's he can do the, it all? Yeah, that's where it comes. I mean, it's 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 Michelangelo, right? Like he's the original Renaissance man. He was a a painter. He was a sculptor. He was an architect. Wrote a little bit of poetry, and I don't know what people were saying. No, you can't. You can't. In fact, he was, according to the stories, pushed into painting when he didn't even want to do it. He wanted to be sculpting only. So I don't know that there was anybody out there being like, Michelangelo, listen, <laughs> listen, kid. Calm down. Yeah, you're getting Calm, a little too you're a great sculptor. <laughs> okay, just focus on that because let me tell you, you don't have the creativity to be a painter. I mean, look at the Pieta, um, man. Focus your energy <laughs> on that. Yeah, I mean, think about that. Just think about that. You are, you are, I mean, let me do the math in my head really quick. 
I'm trying to think how old was he when he did the Pieta? It was 1499. I think he was born in 74. 25 years old. Around. Yeah. 25 years old. You create that. I mean, if you've seen the Pieta in person, you have an idea. <laughs> I mean, Sometimes the I... Pieta is it's stunning. It's ridiculous. It's yeah. It's it makes it makes you cry. It, it can make many people cry. Many many people have cried in front of the Pieta, for good reason. Yeah. Sometimes when and I think th about something like that, like him making that at twenty five, and like in what world, let's say in my imagined world, I created something equivalent to the Pieta by the time I was twenty five years old. I feel like I would just like lay down and retire. Like I, I'd just be like, you know what? <laughs> that was pretty great. That was like the height of what I've got going on right now. Just think he would go on to make the David and he would go on to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. So just to the thought that somebody who was so great and who must have known how great he was would, would say, okay, I'm going to do some painting now. Like I'm going to try my hand at that. And then, and start from zero. I mean, not zero because he did do a little apprenticeship as a young man uh, in painting. So he had a bit of background in painting, but, you know, to kind of start from zero again, and then again, as an architect, I mean, I feel like architecture is, I mean, yes, it's an art for sure, but it's also got all of this engineering and mathematical skills that you need to have as well. It's like, how do you even transition from painter to architect? It, it's incredible. And yet going back to like what we were saying before, there are distinct common threads within all three of those things. The ability to draw, the ability to create realistic form. And he just can do it in these multiple ways, but it's not like they're completely unrelated. It's not like he becomes... No, they're not completely... All, you know. But here's another one. Mm -hmm. Charles Ives, not as famous as Michelangelo, but in the music world, especially American music, he's pretty well known. He was a 20th century, early 20th century composer. And he was an insurance agent. That was his job. And he was really good at it. He was very successful. And I mean, composing music and selling insurance, you know, there's not a lot of through lines there. Could be personality. But... The, the through line of having something <laughs> dynamic about your personality and the way that you look at the world, hear the world. Yeah. I mean, with it. I definitely think that different qualities, different personality qualities can help you in different careers, but that's not really a connecting line between the careers. Whereas painting, sculpting, and architecture, you can see the connection mm -hmm. between them. Maybe this is just a rumor, but wasn't Raphael sort of, you know, the other famous painter, Raphael, wasn't he sort of the, the that voice for Michelangelo? I don't know if Michelangelo cared or not, but like, wasn't he the one saying, oh man, he is... He's just a brute of a sculptor. He's not going to be able to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Like, good luck, man. Isn't he the yeah, guy? I mean, Isn't the, he the voice? We don't know how much. I mean, I honestly don't know how much is fact and how much is, you know, the agony and the ecstasy and or, you know, R Ross King's The Pope's Ceiling. There are some great stories about it. How much of it is true? I mean, you'd have to dig pretty deep in letters and, and things like this. But the story goes that... Michelangelo was becoming very, very successful in Rome as a sculptor, you know, with the Pietà. He was working on an enormous tomb for the Pope, Julius II. And he was on his way to eclipsing Raphael. And Raphael was not uh, was not down with that. They're about the same age, by the way. Raphael's a few years younger. And so Raphael, who had a lot of friends in high places and was quite in quite close with the Pope, 
apparently hatched a scheme with his good friend Bramante, who was an architect from the same town as Raphael. And he was the Pope's favorite architect. He was working on the new St. Peter's Basilica. So the, the story goes that they hatched this scheme to convince Julius II to hire Michelangelo to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel because they thought he could not do it. The expectations of the time was, oh, you're a, you're a sculptor, you should be able to paint. Like that was, it was, it was much more common to think that somebody could move between artistic mediums. But Raphael thought Michelangelo wouldn't be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of convinced the Pope to hire him in the expectation that he would fail and that then he would, you know, be laughed out of Rome and Raphael would be the top dog in Rome again. We do know that Michelangelo did not want the job. He did not want to be painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling because he was so determined to finish the tomb of the Pope, which was supposed to be his lifelong masterwork. And he was extremely frustrated that he was forced off of the project. And he just could not wait to finish the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel to get back to the tomb, which is why he was able to do it so quickly. Four years is sounds like a long time, but when you see the Sistine Chapel, it's amazing that he, it only took four years. So that's the story. How much is true? How much is you know, embellishment, not sure, but that's the story. But think about that. How bad, it, let's say that story actually is true. How bad did Raphael think that the ceiling was going to turn out? I mean, think about your least favorite frescoist. Frescoist? Frescoist? <laughs> what would that word be? I don't even know. That's right. That's right. That's a right. It's correct word. It is. Okay. Your least favorite guy in Rome, or girl, I guess. Are there any girls? There was like one, maybe. Um, uh, there were a few. Okay. <laughs> Your least favorite one of those, like the ones that I like the least when I walk around Rome and see, all of those would be pretty good, right? If they ended up on the ceiling. So he thought what he yeah. was going to like draw cartoon animals and, and uh, it would just be so embarrassing. No. Like his anatomy would be I so think... incorrect that it would just be a fright. I, I don't know that it. He probably didn't think his anatomy would be incorrect because Michelangelo clearly knew anatomy because he's sculpting it. But maybe because painting a ceiling is very difficult, it's very difficult to get the perspective right and to get the proportions right because you you know, you have to paint it in this very difficult position and you can't look at it sort of from far away. You know, you can only, and frescoing itself is an extremely difficult technical process with many steps and you have to be very quick and it's not easy. And he probably just thought, Hey, I know how hard this is because I do this as a job. So I know that, that that sculptor over there, who's just whittling away at a block of marble is not going to be able to do it. Hmm. Maybe the, he was wrong. The fiction writer brain that I have thinks maybe the Pope was pushing Raphael to do this. And he thought, boy, that's going to be one bear of an assignment. I'm going to have to lay on my back for four years or seven years. And it's going to be wildly unpleasant. And I'd much rather do something else. So I've just got to convince the Pope that this someone else should do it. Oh, I kind of don't like that Michelangelo guy. Let's have him do it. Yeah, you never know. You never know. We need a time machine to go back and figure out what really happened. Either way. Egg on his face, Raphael. That that was if that's true at all. Well, not miscalculation. I mean, the 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 beautiful ending of the story yes. is that Raphael sneaks into the Sistine Chapel to see it when it's halfway done. Again, according to these stories, you know, yes. I wasn't there, so I can't be sure. Um, but he sneaks in and when it's about halfway finished, and he is completely stunned. But he has the humility 
which is very rare in a successful, handsome young artist like Raphael would have been, to really give Michelangelo his due. And you see, I think the most fascinating thing is that you see a change in Raphael's style from the time he sees the Sistine Chapel. Mm. And his style starts to emulate Michelangelo's style. You can see it night and day, the change. It happens around 1513, the change in his style. And he starts to paint just like Michelangelo. I mean, not exactly like him, but very mu much more similar. And then if you go to the um, the Raphael rooms in the Vatican, which are the rooms that where Pope Julius II, this pope who commissioned all of this stuff, where he was living, Raphael painted the, the walls of four of his rooms. And the most famous, by far, the most famous painting is the School of Athens, which is, a, is sort of a double a double painting, because on the one hand, it's depicting all of these great philosophers, Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and mathematicians as well, and philosophers. And on the other hand, it's depicting the great artists of Raphael's own day. So he has placed the physical features of certain artists that he knows into the faces of these great ancient Greek philosophers. And so you, you see the face of Plato is actually the face of Leonardo da Vinci, for example, and there are several others. He had finished this painting, or it was almost finished. And after he sees the Sistine Chapel, he goes back to the room of the signature where this painting is. He literally chips off the plaster where there are some steps in the very foreground where there are no people. And he replasters it so he can paint it again, just that little part. And he paints a portrait of Michelangelo. I can't remember. I think it's Diogenes. I think he's depicting him as Diogenes, who is apparently like, um, what is it? Uh, he was a he was a loner. I can't remember. There's a more specific word for it. He was. <laughs> Do you want me there's to look a certain. It up? <laughs> sure. Nah. He had a particular philosophy that was antisocial <laughs> or something like that. Well, he's known as the cynic, one of the founders of cynicism. The cynic. Mm -hmm. Okay, there you go. He's a cynic. So Raphael has depicted him as, you know, as the famous cynic, but seated alone. No one around is around him. He's all by himself. He's looking a little bit lonely. And he's wearing, this is the best part. This is why I used to tell this story when I used to do tours of the, of the Vatican. He's wearing his boots that famously... Michelangelo never took, he never bathed. He never changed his clothes. I mean, almost never. And while he was working on the Sistine Chapel, he famously never, he never bathed once. And, or he bathed one time, he never washed his hair. Ooh. And he never took his boots off. He like slept in his boots. And when he took them off, all the skin of his feet came off with them. And so he, he depicts every single other figure in the School of Athens is barefoot or in sandals. Every single one. Mm. But Michelangelo is wearing, wearing his boots. So I love that he's like, okay, I'm going to give you credit because you are a great artist. And this painting depicting all of the greatest artists of the Renaissance would not be complete without you. However, I am going to make fun of you at the same time. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, wow. That's so gross. But also so lovely. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, Katie, just because it's on my mind mm. uh, and just because I wrote about it recently, there is an exhibit on in Rome next month of the paintings of Bob Dylan. Mm, there you go. Did you know that Bob Dylan was a painter? No, I did not. He's actually a really amazing painter. Hmm. I looked through some of his paintings. And when I saw the press release, I was like, this can't be the same Bob Dylan. Like, it's just a like it's just the same name. There's lots of people who have the same name. It's not that rare of a name. And I went on to, to Wikipedia and I was like, 
Bob Dylan's Wikipedia page. And then it was like after all of his musical stuff, he's also a very successful and acclaimed painter. Wow. Who knew? Yeah. How interesting. You'll have to go see it. Oh, we are going to go see it for sure. That's great. I love that. Yeah. So there you go. Case in point. So that's January of 2023 for people who are going to Rome. You can look for the paintings of Bob Dylan. At the Maxi, which is the Museum of 21st Century Art. Yes. All right. Well, very interesting. We shall leave it there. And uh, until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Barks. Join us again. Bye. Bye. Katie here. Tis the season of giving. And as you think about what gifts you want to give at the end of the year, we hope that you will consider a gift to The Bittersweet Life. But maybe when you look at your pocketbook, money's running short. Well, you can give us the gift of spreading the word about the show. Make a social media post about us. Write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Include a mention of the show in your annual holiday card. We appreciate your creativity. And we love when you don't keep the show a secret. We make this show for people to enjoy it. So spread the word as a way of giving back. Should you also want to make a financial donation, there are links to donate in the show notes. Happy holidays, and thank you so much.